You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. There are some people who you see and hear from a distance, and you're inspired by their insights, their wisdom, and the impact they have on others. Those are the people I want to talk to, to learn from, and to share whatever platform I have with. My guest this week is Camille Jerry. That's Jerry spelled G-E-R-I. She's a community organizer, a writer, an educator, a wife, a mom. But the title or the role that grabbed my attention, though, is Pastoral Care for Justice. I, I wanted to know more about that role. She's a deep thinker. She's a dynamic writer and a dope poet. You can follow her on Instagram at Camille.Jerry. That's at Camille.G-E-R-I. I invite you now to listen to this conversation from start to finish as we dive deep. Camille, Camille Jerry, thank you for joining hey. me. Thank you for joining me. I love the energy. Um, my listeners here, they're going to have fun with this podcast because she's full of life, full of energy. So we're going to have a good time. Now, I want people to get to know who you are. Um, you're a community organizer, um, a writer, a poet, uh, an educator. And what, what caught my eyes was the title on your Instagram, Pastoral Care for Justice. I yeah. love that. And I've never <laughs> heard that before. So in unpacking and, and sharing who you are in terms of how you got to that place, Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about you, uh, whatever you, you, you're like, you like to share. Yeah. So hi everyone. I'm Camille. Um, I am, as Phil said, a wife, a mom, community organizer, and a writer. And, um, I'm also biracial. So I am black and Filipina and my husband is Mexican. So my whole life is all about being interracial. Um, but being interracial in a context where whiteness is not involved, which is, not rare, but not at the forefront um, in a lot of conversations on being interracial. And I, yeah, I've been in the field of doing community organizing work since about 2009. So I don't like doing math. So whatever the math is there, that's, <laughs> that is how long I've been doing it. Um, started off in college where I um, went to UC Santa Cruz. I majored in a major that was heavily focused on social justice. And um, I was trained by these um, just these amazing women who were queer feminists um, who had taught me about how to analyze the politics of culture. So basically looking at how culture impacts political change and the social sphere. So I took that training and um, they encouraged me to do a six month internship. It was actually a requirement. So I um, lived in New York City. I lived in Queens. So shout out to everyone who's in Queens. Okay, <laughs> and, okay. Um, and interned at Ailey, um, the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, where I learned about how, um, so I wasn't dancing. That's, let's make a really big differentiation from that. <laughs> um, I was in their arts and education department. So I was learning about how, um, how to empower communities through the arts. Um, and from that, they also introduced me to like ballet Hispanico. So I learned it from the context of being um, a black woman, but I also learned it from the context of understanding how to work in um, Latino neighborhoods. And I grew up in California, so um, I wasn't exposed to the type of Latino cultures that I was exposed to in New York City. So there was a, a, a both areas have a deep richness, but there was so much that I had to learn um, in regards to what it means to be an outsider who's coming in as a community organizer and that level of humility that's necessary um, in cross-cultural. So for the past um, five years, my husband and I, we are, so the secular term for it is community organizers. That's the best way for me to explain it. Um, but the like, depending on what area of Christianity you're in, um, they'll call it incarnational minister. So for the past five years, we've lived in communities um, with people providing them pastoral care. So it's not so much like 
um, hey, come do this and surprise you're reading the Bible, which we have done. We, we like call it like the gorilla Bible tactic. We've done that for um, the first couple of years and then realized that that just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So it, we were just, we just decided to be real people who lived with real people. Yeah. Um, oh, that's you, you decided to be like Jesus, huh? Yeah, I started to be like Jesus. You know, I, it was like what year two, year three, that I was like, oh, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's hard because when you're incarnational, you're you're on all the time. Like, right, two a.m. I'm gonna have someone knock on, like someone's knocking on my door. I'm talking to the police officer, um, or uh, more recent. So, and that was when we were living, um, in an inner city context. Um, now we live in a facility with women who've aged out of the foster care system. So instead of having like police officers knocking on my door, I have um, like deeper conversations or emotions that are I'm not ready for. And like sitting in these conversations and being able to be present in someone else's pain. Um, and that is like, at the end of the day, everything we do is ministry of presence. That's yeah. really what community organizing is. That's, that is what being an incarnational minister is, is how to be, how do we be present in this moment? Um, even though 80% of the time we're not prepared for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's all you, I, you gave me some language. Um, I, I'm familiar with the incarnational ministry. I love ministry of presence. Um, I want to ask you a couple of follow-up questions though. Well, one, I used to live across the street from the um, Alvin Ailey dance studio. Oh, you did? Not the, not the, the new, new one? one the not old? the new okay. one. The old one. The one, yes. Literally, I lived right across the street. So I'd see all these dancers coming up, uh, up and down the sidewalk to and from uh, classes, I guess. Uh, so that's crazy. Um, and I, I, when I left New York, they were just finishing, I think, either just completed or about to complete the new new facility. Oh, really? Yeah. Dang. So yeah, we were in the new facility. So that's just wild. Wow. Look at how we intersect. I love exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, t- tell me, tell us a little bit about how feminism influenced or has influenced, if at all, your Christianity, how you live out your faith. Um, has it influenced um, that at all? Um, yeah, it does. I, I... And I, let me pause. I asked that question because for so for for a lot of Christians, particularly the more conservative um, they are, that word feminism is a trigger word. Yeah, it's like a oh no, we don't we don't do that. And, yeah. In many circles, it's not, but in some circles, it is. So, how does feminism? How has it influenced your uh, your faith? Yeah, I think. Um... Sorry, one thing I love is like to read people. So when I see someone shut down the moment I say feminist, like that, I don't know, for some reason that really entertains me. <laughs> <laughs> it entertains um, you, huh? Yeah, it's like, it's, I don't know. I just, I'm always like, oh, and you're not safe. Thank you. I've learned from your body language. Um, but I was, so I was like a churchy person before I went to college, but I, it wasn't something that had, um, like deepened, I, I didn't have a deep spirituality yep. until I was in college while well, like simultaneously, like in these feminist studies classes and like doing these amazing things. Um, I was also going to a black church, which was my first experience in the black church. Um, and I just, I realized that everything was interconnected and it wasn't in a sense of like, we think of feminism, you think of like women burning their bras um, and not shaving their legs and like not letting men open the door for them. Um, and those, I mean, those are still conversations that I have with older generations about what it means to be a feminist. Um, and yeah, I, I look at the Bible and it for me, it's like, well, I can see the stories of women and understand that in a different context. Um, and I'm not, it's, I'm not trying to manipulate the Bible. I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to, look at like this one issue and then like manipulate the Bible to say, yeah, yeah, Hey, yeah. this is what it means by this. I legitimately see it as like, okay, well, like as a feminist, but there's no clear definition of feminism first and foremost, there's mm-hmm. only a working definition. Mm-hmm. And the working definition is that everyone is able to talk. Like everyone is able to share their story and share their voice. And like, if you juxtapose that to the story of everyone being invited to the table, there's a parallel. It's like, it's the, we all get to eat at the same place. 
Um, but, you know, with feminism, there's just different contexts as well, right? We have, when we think of feminism, the way our culture supports it is that it's focused on white women. And then you have like Alice Walker talks about womanism, mm -hmm. which is focused on black women. And mm -hmm. then you have like Chicanism where we look at like the work of Doris, Dolores Huerta, right? And that is the context of Chicanas who are rebelling against machismo, not rebelling, but like being liberated from machismo yeah, culture. Yeah. Yep. So there's like, when I say feminist, it shuts people down because I'm not a white woman. And so instantly they're like, oh, she's, she's black or um, ethnically, it depends on how my hair looks, ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> and so she's obviously violent. She's not safe. This like, she's going to burn something, right? Mm. There, these are stereotypes that people carry with them. Um, and for me, it's like, no, I'm actually like a really fun, like chatty person who's really charming. I just um, don't really give space to dominant narratives. Mm. Um, if I'm in a room with, and this has happened before, like I've, because I've been in the evangelical world for almost a decade, um, I, I'm very comfortable sitting, like knowing who I am and calling things out for what they are to rooms full of, with white men and just saying like, okay, well, that's not ministry, that's colonization. So you need to rethink the strategy or like this, like you are not thinking of the least of these. So now you need to think of them um, the way that Amer like American Christianity is so intertwined with proximity to power, which is like not the same thing as the gospel. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> um, and having the context of feminism, like specifically the, um, I'm, I'm gonna mispronounce this, the Com Combahi Collective, I, every time I say it, I, but it's like a, a collective of um, black queer feminists who created a manifesto in, the seven, the 60s, 70s, um, that was focused on what does liberation look like for Black women? Because once Black queer feminists know liberation, everyone benefits. Um, and in my context, what I understand of Christianity is that it is the grassroots movement that has influenced many of our successful grassroots influences, right? Yeah. From like Gandhi, and then you have James Cohen, and then you have Martin Luther King Jr. Like, <laughs> like Christianity is an ongoing grassroots movement. The problem is that in the Western world, we've institutionalized it and we've created this like proximity to power. So we've lost what it originally is. And looking at the work of grassroots organizers and activists, you're able to like, I'm able to see the actions of Jesus made modern. Um, and the problem is that it's not always like the ideology is not always the same. The philosophy is not always the same. There are things that we're going to disagree with, but like there's no growth without conflict. So we have to be able to sit in the tension mm -hmm. and say, hey, the church has been wrong in this capacity. But this movement <clears throat> led by these people who are not like our churchy religious people, that is liberating others and that's serving others. So what is the church doing wrong? And it's not how do we adopt it and take it? Um, but what is the church doing wrong and how do we join and learn? Because the people who are creating these effective grassroots movements, um, they obviously have something to teach us. And that posture of humility, humility is not normal um, in the Christian church, unfortunately. Yes. Like yeah. the, the great irony is that the Christianity doesn't know how to be humble anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So how do we, how do we learn? Um, as Christians from feminists who are already empowering and taking care of the least of these for liberation and how do we do it in a way that is authentic to, to serving, authentic to them and authentic to the gospel. And I think that we can find, or not even I think, I know and I've seen the ways that we can, we can do this and have there be just genuineness overall. Yeah. So. Hmm. You know, you, you talk about the proximity, Christianity and its proximity to power, its entanglement with power. And we, and we know how true that is. Um, as I'm listening to you and personifying power, it won't allow itself to be humble, to be vulnerable, to sit in attention. Right. Because it, that, that tension eventually may mean um, power has to change. Power has to um, make space. Power has to be shared, right? 
and by nature, I don't, you know, power is not going to to do those things. It it needs to hold on to to that that dominance um, that it has, um, whoever it may be in that position. Um, I want to go back to something I thought you said was was powerful, which I think can speak to what you just shared about what can the church learn. You said talk about empowering communities through the arts. You know, as an artist, I, I consider myself a, a poet, an artist myself. And you recently, we had an event and you did um, two spoken word pieces. Um, you did one um, that you wrote and you did another one where you took pieces of all the poems that were shared and you made and you did a, a poem at the end, which was phenomenal. You would have thought Thank that you. you had spent days preparing that, but you did it in oh, the moment. It's like 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> So what can the, the church learn um, from, from the arts? Like for me, especially since I've been in ministry, that's been an area that I feel like the church has tried to silence or been afraid of. I often say that the, the arts or the artist is the prophet. And the people of God, going back to Old Testament, have always rejected the prophetic voice. Mm-hmm. And so there's something there that I think the church can can um, can benefit from. In what ways have you empowered the community through arts, or how can the church be empowered through through arts? Yeah, the I mean, when it comes to the arts, so I am just like I love the arts. Um, but when it comes to the arts, there's this term, and I'm trying to remember it <laughs> I can't off the top of my head uh-huh. um and it's it's all about the power of aesthetic so what it comes down to is that the church is in no ways comfortable with um with utilizing the arts because it's not something they can capitalize off of mm. except and, and when you look at like worship right um how often is the worship leader like, like dressed in like skinny jeans and like, like looking, like looking a type of way, right? Like, and like the female, like at least one of the female worship singers has like a fancy hat on. It doesn't matter if you're in the black church or the white church, like someone got a fancy hat. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like we, when we think of worship, like we, we contextualize it to how do we make it as mainstream and poppy as possible. And I'm speaking in regards to the white evangelical church because that's where I've been these past few years. Um, And I've had conversations just about like, that there's a standard of look um, for the worship leaders, right? So that's not art at the end of the day, that's creativity, yeah, but that's rigid, that's power. I'm structuring and ordering what what is considered holy. Um, So the church has rejected the use of the arts because as an institution, when it has received the arts, it has tried to order it and control it. Um, And that is not what the power of the arts is. Like that is is in no ways what what art is about. so there's this term, it's called aesthetic force. That's the term I was thinking about. And aesthetic force is historically, um, it shows up everywhere. It's when the power of an art form influences someone so much that it completely changes their lives. So um, one example is that there was a young lawyer who I think was in New Orleans um, way, way, way back in the day. And he sees this trumpet player and he, the lawyer is white, trumpet player is black, and the trumpet player is is on the street, and he's playing. And the white lawyer thinks to himself, "Wow, this guy's a genius." Like, and and it's not even while well, this guy's a genius. This is the time of Jim Crow, so it's, um, I did not know that black people could be so creative that mm-hmm. they could be so genuine and that there is a genius in them that completely changes his life. Mm. Um, to the point where decades later, that lawyer is one of the key lawyers in um, in the Supreme Court case to end segregation, right? And that trumpet player is Louis Armstrong. Mm. 
So, Amazing right, story. Louis Armstrong at that time is like, he's not, he's not like Satchmo, like we all know him. Like, I got, I love Louis Armstrong. So yeah. <laughs> I got big ups love for him. But he's a trumpet player on the street who's black in the segregated South. Um, there's a lot going against him. But because he played and he played so beautifully and he played so well, he inspired a lawyer who decades later ended the system of, ended the form of the system of oppression that he was in um, at that time and in that context, right? The church can't control that. And yeah. when we talk about the institution of the church, um, it's all about how do we control it? How do we, how do we um, make it appealing to the masses, right? And if we really want to use aesthetic force, if we really want to use art to create that deeper impactful culture, we can't ask that question. We have to let the artist work. So, uh, so when it comes to like arts in the church, it's hard because you're asking people to let go of control um, and you're asking people to trust. And when it comes to proximity to power, there's no trust. <laughs> like it yeah, is, yeah. what do I do to, to make sure that the vision that I have stays? Um, and that is, it just, it doesn't work. Like that is not the movement of the gospel. And like my husband and I always joke around about, you know, King David, when he was like dancing at the gates, um, right? That is aesthetic force. That is a man with joy who's dancing like a maniac. <laughs> um, but it's not something that like Saul cannot control it. Like it cannot be controlled. It's just something that exists and that is happening and, and, and that is the movement of the Holy Spirit. I was going to um, say, there's that link of the Spirit, yeah. Um, yeah. arts, and, and, and how the Spirit moves. And so now you start to think about how much do we try to control God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not just control the arts or control the artists, but if the artist, if, the, if art is linked to the move of the Spirit and you can't control it, you have to let it kind of be and flow and, and do what it does how much are we really trying to, to control God? Yeah. You're right. And, and that's so true. And that there's also like the question of how equipped are you as a leader to facilitate what happens next? Because leaders, like, I, I personally think that some leaders just actually, I don't think I know that there are leaders who are the reason why they lead the church is because they don't want to deal with like their own trauma. Um, and it, and, and, and controlling a church, controlling a congregation, helps them feel like, like Jesus loves them, which, you know, is like a whole nother conversation, but, <laughs> um, yeah, when it comes to artwork that you see, there are certain conversations that, that a leader has to be prepared for and not shy away from. And more often than not, we are shying away from it because we just can't sit in that tension and in the presence of it because art should like art should make you super uncomfortable. Um, yep. because once you're uncomfortable, you're allowing yourself to learn and to grow, um, and, and to develop in new ways and connect with people in a whole nother level. That's so good. That's so good. Let, let's, let's continue with this idea of art, but I want to go in a different direction because I want to get to, um, really focusing on women's history month. Um, yeah. how much, if you can speak to this, how much art is involved how, how much is protest artistry oh it totally it, everything thinking back to last summer yeah how much yeah. how creative how because because I'm, I'm as i'm listening to you i'm thinking about you know you're saying we try we can't control art and that's that's what the church struggles with that's why it rejects arts or the artists because we, it can't control it and then we talked about well the spirit moves the artist moves kind of as this as the spirit moves right the power of that and so we're trying to control the spirit um, we're trying to control god but then when we start to intersect with culture mm -hmm. like say whether it's through traditional art forms or something like protests which mm -hmm. is an artistry in and of itself um, no matter what you may think about the, the cause or the group or the intensity um, that comes with it, protest itself is an art form. Yeah. It's creativity. It's raw and it's emotional. Yeah. yeah. So any, can you speak to, particularly thinking about this past summer, um, the artists that gathered 
across the country, across the world, really, in protest of injustice, of an injustice that we all witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, just speaking to that intersection, because I think that's where the church fails, is yeah. where we intersect with culture in non-traditional church ways. Yeah. And it makes I would the say church non-institutional church Non-institutional. Ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that, I think, like, I mean, going back to like the days of Exodus, there was no written word. So how how did Moses know the stories of the Israelites? Like, how did they know their creation myths and their creation stories in order to write like the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus and everything else? And it is done through art, right? It is done through like the Psalms are actually songs. They are songs that are sung. There is creativity that is breathed throughout mm-hmm. the entire Bible. And and we don't have the word of like the written word of God if we didn't have um, the storytellers and the creatives and the singers and, and the painters to pass down what is tradition, what is the word. Um, so when it comes to like, like last year, people, like there was an awakening as old, like, as it, it was big. Um, and I'm still like, as I still reflect on it, there's, there's a lot more words than I think I have, I can say myself. Um, but anytime anyone uses their voice, it's not for nothing. Like you, you use it so that somebody else will be inspired by it. Um, you don't hold, like, not everyone is going to give an, I have a dream speech but, and like change the entire world, but everyone's going to give their own version of it. Um, that's going to inspire someone else. So where I live in Orange County, there was a, um, we did have, we've had a few protests, um, in my city, there was one, and there was an artist who drew portraits of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and just walked around to show people, right? And that was, that was his lament. That was him telling his story. He wasn't trying to, um, like, it wasn't a moment of capitalizing. It was look at them and say their names, right? See them. Yeah. Yeah. See them. And as a portrait artist, like I'm, I'm not, I would love to be a fine artist. I wish I were sometimes, (laughs) but as a portrait artist, you're looking at someone's face for hours. Like you're, you're contemplating and you're meditating and you are fixating on these different inflections of somebody's face. Um, that is an emotional and spiritual connection that you're creating. And then you're communicating that through, through your medium, um, right? A, a dancer, a dancer uses their entire body to communicate an emotion, um, to communicate lament or to communicate joy. Um, and this is, and because I worked at Ailey, of course, most of my contacts are from, are like based in Ailey, but like, right, the Fix Me Jesus dance from Ailey, that is the black church, that is black lament. Mm-hmm. That is, and that's black lament made global because now it is something that is seen throughout the world. Um, so every, for art and creativity, it is, it is holy to share your voice. It is holy to share your story. Um, I do it in writing because poetry has, it comes easy to me, but for a dancer, they do it through their body. Um, for a fine artist, they do it through, through contemplate, through really intense contemplation. Um, but this is also to say that there is solidarity in how we use art. And I'm going to, I'm going to, um, connect it with also culture because I live next to um, Hawaiian Gardens, Long Beach, which is a very large um, Pacific Island population. So at the some of the protests would start with um, Pacific Islanders doing the haka, which is the dance of war, I love right? It. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I was like, I was, I'm here for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I loved it. But that was, right, that is art and that is culture. Um, and that art and culture is a creating doing that at a protest is also a form of solidarity that brings us together right because it also provides like it i didn't realize that i needed that in order to enter this next stage or this next level of bravery um so i see someone doing the dance to prepare themselves for war and it's not like i'm gonna like prepare myself for war um but i it does give me it gives it gave me at that time like this level of bravery that 
was necessary, but that also crossed through a culture that wasn't mine that says, hey, I see you and I'm here with you. And I'm doing this dance for you and I'm doing this dance for me and I'm doing this dance for us because liberation is about, it's an us effort. It's not a solo effort. Wow. You know, this is so, I didn't know we were gonna go to the art direction <laughs> and spend so much time here, um, I love it. You know, I'm grieving though. As I listen to you, I'm grieving because, you know, I'm, I'm a critic of the church, as Dr. King would say, because I love the church. Yeah. Especially, you know, in the black community, that was our anchor, has been our anchor. And I, I grieve because we have allowed the sovereignty of reason which is more European, Enlightenment age influence on Christianity to override our really natural instincts as creative beings mm -hmm. and allowing that to be a way of how, be a way to um, have a ministry of presence. Yeah. We would, it seems like we would rather have a ministry of um, lecture, yeah. a ministry of doctrines and creeds more so than a ministry of presence, especially when our presence is required in spaces that we're unfamiliar with. Yeah. And so I'm grieving us not being artists like we should. You said something I think profound, portrait artists they look into the face and they reflect and it's intimate and it's deeply spiritual. And I wonder if we know how to be artists when we stand before God, portrait artists when we stand before God. Yeah. Looking into the face and reflecting and sitting and it's deeply intimate and spiritual. Or are we thinking about God yeah, only, which is good, but only rather than staring in the face, metaphorically staring in the face of God. But also, are we doing that with each other? Are we looking at other communities, other people from the margins and reflecting? When was the last time someone stopped and saw the homeless and just reflected on their face mm -hmm. like a portrait artist? and made it a deeply intimate and spiritual encounter that could be like the lawyer who was changed by the jazz musician, Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. When was the last time we've done, we've done that to a homeless person? When was we the last, don't. you know, when was the last time we've done that to um, the person and, and on the margins in our own families? Mm-hmm. At work, I'm going, I'm just kind of riffing a little bit. Let me bring it back. You, you just said something that it was just, to me, it was just so profound. Um, let, let's, let's go ahead a little bit. I'm going to come back to another question. Um, you talk a lot in your post about trauma and white supremacy. Those are two phrases that I see throughout your posts. Yeah, they're like they're like number one and two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell 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 us, tell me a little bit about about that about the the impact uh, that you've observed from um, just being incarnational, being in the presence of communities, organizing, and mm -hmm. being that person that uplifts voices from the margins, um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, women. What has been the impact of white supremacy, the toxicity of white supremacy. How have you seen that impact people of color, impact women? Yeah. Women of color. I mean, I mean, women of color at the very bottom, right? Yeah. It's, it's like indigenous women and black women, the very bottom. Indigenous women in our, they're, they're so like, the genocide and erasure of indigenous women is so prevalent that people don't even think of indigenous women as being at the bottom of the barrel because they don't think of them. Um, and then with black women, right, we, 
like massage noir, um, hatred of the black body. Uh, there is like in, I always equate feminism to like levels. And I feel like one of like the early levels of feminism is like the love your body, body positivity movement. And that's actually not it. Um, because for any type of like body positivity, it, it, it negates from the reality that anti-blackness is what roots the ideas of like the, the feminine aesthetic, right? Because a w woman should be skinny and pale um, and white and blonde and have blue eyes. And the opposite of that is, um, yeah, the opposite of that is is less than, um, and the opposite of that is obviously the black body. So, um, right, that that just is like a really quick answer to mm -hmm. <laughs> how it impacts women of color, just in regards to like our physical being. Um, but what we have to uh, understanding white supremacy, understanding how to dismantle white supremacy means that we have to understand how to how it works as a system of oppression. So um, we have to think of it as like a three-stranded braid and there's three parts to um, oppression. So the first part is feudalism, um, which is the use of land as monetary value and as wealth. Um, and I've, I say this a lot, but people say like, oh, like Camille, we live in a capitalist society. It's no longer feudalism. Like that was back in the days of like, knights and shoguns and samurais and blah, 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 but no, it's not because like colonization is a byproduct of feudalism. The doctrine of discovery is a byproduct of feudalism. Um, the taking of indigenous land is a byproduct of feudalism. Taking Africans through the middle passage um, and relocating, forcefully relocating them um, and having them become enslaved peoples, that's a form of feudalism mm -hmm. as well. Cause mm -hmm. not only is it taking a people from their land and putting them into a new land, but now that land is no longer occupied um, or not as occupied and it is made bare, um, which has created the way for more colonization. So the first part of oppression is land. It always comes down to land. Um, we have a friend who is a real estate agent and he has like, he, he explained something to my husband and I so well. He's like, if you wanna screw people over, create paperwork. Right? How often throughout history is there paperwork created that say, hey, this land is mine um, or these people are mine, right? It, he's just, it, it's historians review paperwork. Paper, like when we look at the historical paperwork, you're, you see all of these ways that, that our connection and tie to the land, um, whether or not is done in a capitalistic way or a socialism way, socialist way, um, oppresses people. Um, and now we see it today with like gentrification. Um, I mean, we live next to next to Los Angeles, and um, the Dodger Stadium, like that was a hor like creating the Dodger Stadium, getting people out of their homes, yep. brown people out of their homes. Yep. That was incredibly racist. And then yep. what does the Dodgers, what did the Dodgers do? They turn around and make it like the most Latino company ever to <laughs> erase like that history of it, right? Yeah. Because how many people are saying Los Doyers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> out here in Los Angeles. Um, but that is a form of, of like taking the land, yeah. right? Absolutely. How many teams, it's like how many sports teams does LA need to have? Um, and now we have like new football stadium in Inglewood. Well, whose land are like, who has lived there generationally? Whose land are we taking? Um, and then the second part of the braid of oppression is disability, which is, Every, every form of disability, every form, every form of oppression seeks to institutionalize a way to disable people. So for the enslaved, it was not giving them autonomy of their body or, allow, or like teaching anyone how to read. Um, how do we keep them? It's essentially, how do we disable them so that we don't, it's not that we don't see them as human, but that they can't be uh, equal to us in regards to owning land. Because um, th they go together. If somebody is unfit, then they're unable to own land, which means they're unable to have wealth. Um, and and there are just, there are so many ways that the institutions seek to disable people, whether it is physically or emotionally. Um, but every type of liberative work that we do, it all boils down to how, it all boils down to understanding um, disability as a foreign, as, as the site of both oppression and liberation, right? We can't do the work we do in racial injustice if we are not 
learning from and advocating for our brothers and sisters and family who are advocating for um, disability justice as well. Um, and then the last part is normalizing violence. And this is when it, this is, when we say normalize violence, people are like, they just think of like the overt action, um, like <laughs> punching, fighting, et cetera, et cetera. But the ways that we, the ways that white supremacy has normalized violence are through social norms, right? Politeness, respectability politics. Um, there's policing. There is the ongoing imposter syndrome of people of color, women of color, those who are in the LGBTQ community, um, and then also verbal assault. And verbal assault can be as, as singular and as simple as bullying in a, in a classroom, or it could be full on like, you know, a president from once upon a time ago who would tweet all the time. <laughs> so yep. right, these are the, when we see oppression as these three different parts that work together, feudalism, disability, normalized violence, then we understand that when it comes to being present with people and being, being, being in, in their lives to liberate them from white supremacy, right? It, it all comes down to, I need, I want to see you as human and I want you to see yourself as human because we are, we are under a three strand system of trauma that seeks to take away our humanity by A, removing our, like removing us from land, B, disembodying us to the point where we are institutionally disabled and then C, normalizing violence not just not just the violence that comes from um white, white supremacists but the violence that we have in turn normalized and mm -hmm. internalized within ourselves like mm -hmm. it's the language that we speak it's what we do in our homes um yep. it's what we see in school how like standard like i'm thinking of standardized testing right now but like that's a form of that's just a form of violence in general like standardized yeah, yeah. tests are not they don't work or um right my so I, I, I know that I was going to pursue a doctoral degree and I really wanted to, um, I really wanted to be like a professor or a dean. Um, and that was a, a, a goal that I had. And I realized that a part of that goal was because as a woman of color, um, as a mixed black woman, I had received so much hurt and trauma in relationship with people that I thought as long as I can, as long as I become this position of power, then I will win, right? And it was because I didn't have the imagination to see myself as human and not needing to justify who I am outside of that position of power. Um, because a lot of us and a lot of people, when they think about combating white supremacy, then, their their goals become proximity to power instead of you know proximity to being a person mm. <laughs> right wow. so there's like esau mccauley right he is amazing and i right reading while black is an amazing book but there's a part of reading while black where he's like i wish i didn't have to do this yeah but yeah. the only way for you to hear me is for me to get the degree um yeah and i've totally fallen into that mentality like man, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, I should have gone to grad school. <laughs> I should have got my degree. should have gotten my doctoral degree. Um, but I have to realize that that route is not for everyone. Um, so how do I, how do I combat these systems of oppression for BIPOC people, for my people is, well, first and foremost, I, I want you to be able to see how you are being institutionalized into being disembodied and disabled. And then second of all, I want you to understand how violence has been normalized within yourself, either through your mindset or your actions um, or even your routines. What, in what ways has white supremacy not infiltrated, but in what ways was it ingrained so much into you that you can't even see that what you're doing is, is killing you? Yeah. Wow. Tell me, tell us about Let's talk about the women or, yeah, the women or woman, and whether it's in the church, she's in the church, or in society historically or currently, um, historically, a historical figure or someone you know personally that has impacted you the most, um, that has spoken into your life, whether they know it or not, that has helped shape and form Camille. 
Yeah, I think. I think the first answer is always Oprah. Like, <laughs> 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 not like, I, and, and I mean, last night there was also the interview that with Meghan Markle that just like exploded. Like, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, right. It was I crazy. got people saying abolish the Commonwealth in my Twitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I Oprah was the first strong black woman that I not. I'm sorry, not strong black woman as in the stereotype of a strong black woman that dehumanizes her, but she was the first example of what a black woman could be in the fullness of herself um that i i did not i didn't have access to because growing up i was ostracized from like the black side of my family so i didn't really i saw them for like two family reunions and like maybe one vacation in st louis but i had oprah every day at 3 p.m after school (laughs) (laughs) so she she very much like I even now, like I still analyze some of the conversations that she had with um, either her guests or people in the audience who tried to tear her down and like the grace and strength that she used um, in in every episode. But there's Oprah, there's Maya Angelou. It's um, women who have reclaimed their voice. Um, and the story of Maya Angelou, of course, is is iconic, right? She did not speak for years, mm-hmm. and then, and but during that time, she was receiving and listening to po- and like reading poetry and and learning of the world and learning how to speak for speak, right? <laughs> learning how to speak in her own way, um, and I think that that we don't give credit enough to that incubation period she gave herself as a child um, that allowed her allows her to flourish. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to like Oprah and Maya Angelou, but <laughs> now, now, let, me, let me ask you this. How has that incubation period, that story of Maya Angelou specifically shaped you? It helps me have grace with myself Okay. because like I said, I, I've spent almost 10 years in a white evangelical context and, um, that was during the time that my husband and I were urban ministers and there was like very early on, like six months into when we were urban ministers, he and I were just like, do you feel like we're actually missionaries to white people? And we were like, yeah, we just like live in the hood, but we're like, really like God has called us to be missionaries to white people. But that has, I mean, that became so exhausting. Um, and I I don't operate out of exhaustion well. I don't know anyone who does, yeah. but I say that as I'm a mom and I don't wanna, I don't wanna take, the exhaustion and the normalized violence and the politeness and the respectability politics that came from the white evangelical church and then turn around and become harsh and and hurtful to my children because I'm traumatized. So Maya Angelou's incubation period, um, it helps me have peace with the fact that I spent an extended amount of time in an unhealthy culture but now I know how to analyze that unhealthy culture and then speak towards people who are leaving it too. Um, because like any survivor of, uh, I'm not gonna say any survivor, but like survivors of domestic violence, they know the patterns, they see it. And a an advocate for survivors of domestic violence, especially the survivors who have come out themselves, their passion is to get other people out. And I've, I've seen that. Um, and I've experienced that in my own life. So for me, you know, there is a period of time where I would call church, I would say my church home and like call church my home. And I have to look at it in the context of like, this is a place, this is a place of domestic violence. It's not just a place of white supremacy, but if I consider the church to be my home and there's so much violence done here, then, then I have fled and there are other people who are fleeing. So how do I come alongside them? Um, but I would not be able to have this context and this analysis, um, or even this voice to speak out against it, if I had not been incubated in the hardship of it for so long. Um, and I wouldn't be able to see it like that if I had not, like, if it weren't for Maya Angelou being so open with her story. And so just so incredible, just being like, you know, the most amazing woman that she is. I just love her. <laughs> yeah. I-, I wish I had, cause she's one of my favorite poets. Um, her and Langston Langston Hughes. I wish I had read her work and seen her work in the same way you did before I entered the white evangelical space. 
because you basically yeah. spoke my story in that season of my life back to me just now oh. of, of being in a space where it's like domestic violence. Um, mm -hmm. and, and most people won't see it like that and many may not even understand it. Um, but there, there is a violence to um, the microaggressions. There's a violence to the stereotypes, the, the comments, the, the gaze. Uh, and I'll share something with you once we end the, the podcast on violence. Um, but coming out of that space, was it six years ago, seven years ago mm -hmm. now, um, there was a, a period of, of healing I needed as well. Yeah. And, and I didn't, I, I wouldn't have seen it in that, in those terms, a space of domestic violence, but that's essentially what it is. You know, yeah. if, it, if it's home, if it's your church home and you're experiencing this violence, I mean, you know, I tell people, and I don't know if people, if people understand the extent of what I experienced, that not only was it, was I experiencing certain things like threats with the use of the N word, Mm -hmm. um, and then I have to either be prideful and respond and it's going to get physical or I need to be wise because I don't know, you know, I'm in a, I'm, I'm not, I'm in foreign land. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, but then when you don't feel like you have the support, right. And that makes it even more, even more difficult. So you just spoke back to me. <laughs> you just ministered to me. Thank you for your ministry of presence. On this, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> On this podcast. Um, what do you think, what is the church missing by limiting, you may have already shared um, throughout this, this podcast already, but what is the church missing by limiting women, marginalizing women in leadership, uh, pastoral and preaching roles, um, and what needs to happen um, to make the necessary changes to truly honor women in the church and in society? So you can speak about the church or society, but... But as a woman, speak to us, tell us what's missing by limiting women's voices, by mm -hmm. marginalizing their gifts, both in the church and if you like, in broader society. Because that's yeah, been, the short answer, go ahead, I'm sorry. The short answer for that is everything. Everything, okay. <laughs> everything is missed, it's everything um, because yeah, it just, so my husband is a pastor's kid. Um, and, and I say my husband's Mexican, but he was raised in the black church. So his stepdad, his former stepdad was a reverend. So he's a PK. Um, and that gives us a really special view of what, how, how incredibly toxic it is to rely on one identity to, to, to lead an entire people. Um, Phil, are you there? Okay, sorry, you stopped, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it, um, I, I think what that has also given us is that we've, I have personally seen um, pastors, let's say when they're not on the pulpit, um, and how they treat their wives um, or how they treat someone else's wife. And this is like, I'm not, I'm not telling stories and I'm, but I'm not hiding facts because the pain and the trauma of thinking that you have to lead an entire congregation on your own and a people that becomes internalized violence, which is then turned towards wives. Um, whether it is physical violence, whether it is sexual assault, whether it is um, adultery. I, we, we have been exposed to a lot of fallen pastors. Um, mm -hmm. And this is not, someone could interpret this as like Camille man bashing, but it's not because if I've seen this and I've experienced this and I know this, then I know that we can't just rely on patriarchy to get us where we need to go, right? Yep. This isn't yep. because patriarchy has its own problems, yep. as I have seen in in the different ways that, right? If there was a ministry for rescuing pastor wives, I feel like I'd be a part of that mm. <laughs> because we've we have just been in 
we've been so close to so much pain. Mm, um, that's, that's legit. Legit. Yeah. And, and there is, right. There's so much excellence and wonder and beauty in femininity um, that is outside of being like soft and using a pastor voice. Right. As you, like, you hear me speak, I speak with authority. I don't change my voice. I don't code switch. I don't, um, I don't use a soft spa voice. And that's something that's expected of women. Right. My brother worked in this, my brother manages spas. So we like joke around about like the pastor voice and the spa voice. Okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the soft spa but, voice. Okay. Right. It's I, I can't even do I can't even fake it. Yeah. But this expectation of it's not even an expectation of women, but um this expectation of female leadership having to look a certain way is is so outdated. <laughs> and it's like it's just it's I don't live in a sitcom this is not the 1950s right I I live in technicolor this is not black and white so I don't need to act like some domestic housewife in order for you to know the gospel if you don't know the authority and power of Jesus yep. um and the fact that I'm speaking speaking his word it's not a it's not a you it's not a me problem it's a you problem like <laughs> that's what it comes down to um but like I've said before I've come across so many pastors who preach from the pulpit out of their own insecurities and their own flaws, right? So who's getting free if this person this, this person has not healed in their own capacity, has not taken the initiative to be humble um, and to listen, um, listen to women? It's, it's wild. Like, there's also this expectation where we look at, like, the Proverbs 31 woman, and she just is like like problematic in so many ways, but like we equate womanhood in the mainstream church culture with the softest versions are like, we turn them soft. Um, and we say, hey, for biblical womanhood, like you have to be like beautiful, like Esther, and you have to be um, loyal, like Ruth, where it's like, Esther was a like, She's a trafficking survivor, but Esther wouldn't be where she is if Vashti didn't say no. So if Vashti wasn't a strong woman, then you wouldn't, mm. like, there would be no liberation, right? Mm. Or, like, like Ruth. Like, Ruth is not the story of, like, hey, this obedient girl gets a husband. Ruth is the story of a woman with privilege who, like, releases all of her privilege to live in solidarity with her mother-in-law who has nothing, right? That's actually the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or my favorite is, like, I tell, I, <laughs> I tell these things to like with my girlfriends, I'm like, yo, you gotta be praying for like the spirit of Yael to come on you because homegirl was not afraid to like, to dismantle some things yeah. with like the tools that built the tent, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, she killed someone, but like she ended it, she ended an entire form of oppression on her own and she did it, she did it on her own terms, making sure that she was safe enough to do so, mm. right? But when we, as like, we don't tell these stories in the way they're authentically supposed to be seen, where women are empowered by the Holy Spirit, who was defined according to feminine terms, like feminine Hebrew language. Um, instead, we like listen to these soft, beautiful like versions of them, and this expectation that womanhood needs to be like soft and beautiful. And I get it. Like, great. I'm, I'm like essentially nine months pregnant. I understand soft and beautiful. Like I got cocoa butter all over my belly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? I get that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like, there's there's a lack of, of power. Um, and I, it's not that I don't expect like men to understand what it is, but like I legit don't expect men to understand what it is because it's not lived, it's not breathed, right? I am usually the only like BIPOC person, BIPOC woman in a room sometimes with a bunch of men. So I know what it's like to be pushed aside and ignored and everything. But I also know like what it's like to say, hey, what you're trying to do is not working. Mm. So you need to figure out how it's going to work. Right. Um, I know my skill set. I know my gifts. Um, but I also know that that the way that I am treated in these spaces and in these rooms um, I have the power and authority to reflect it back. And this is a like accountability 
issue, right? These are the fruits of the spirit. I want you, my kindness might not look like, might not be nice to you, but it's really kind that I have not like snatched your edges. <laughs> and I have not like, that I am telling you, like telling you who you are instead of making you feel like who you think you are. Like, right? Like it, there is, there are these stereotypes surrounding women that seek to silence and suppress in order to protect the institution. Um, but at the end of the day, like if God needed to be protected, like straight up, like if God needed us to be protected, why did Jesus die on the cross? Right? Like why was he resurrected? Right. Cause Paul tried to protect God and he was a terrorist. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. the moment that Jesus was like, you know, why are you trying to kill my people? That ain't going to work. Paul realized, oh, I can't protect God. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this like conservatism or this um, Christian nationalism or even because Christian nationalism has infiltrated so many areas of like the black and immigrant church when we think of of their theologies in proximity to power. Um, it's pervasive and we have to be able to weed it out. But you don't weed it out by only focusing on the movement of men. You weed it out by including everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if we if 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 we don't and if we can't then there's no liberation like liberation doesn't happen with the bare minimum um mm. and also speaking towards like you know i i have been in enough circles where i've legitimately had to say you need to stop inviting white women like you really need to stop like if like we think oh we've invited women to the table we're good right that doesn't work because there are dynamics and there are identity politics and there are cultural values that we need to be aware of and assess. So when a church says we have a woman pastor and it's a white woman, for me, it's like, all you've done is shown me that I'm still not safe here, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that my story is not important here because culturally, the way that you view my dynamic with a white woman is that I'm supposed to serve her. And if she's my pastor, and I'm going through my own point of crisis, then I'm not, I know that I'm not going to get served by her. Right. I, and that is I'm not saying that's gospel truth, but I've seen it happen. I've experienced it happen. Um, but there are also white women who, who I love who are able to say, okay, Camille, like I, um, I understand that you need someone to shepherd you through this. So together, so like together, let's find um, a woman of color who can be your spiritual director, which has happened, right? I had a, a white woman spiritual director um, who was like, I need you to be in a black woman spiritual direction group because I can't, um, I can't authentically lead you mm. as a white woman. And I was like, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is really true. So there are people who are able to like lay down the crosses of their identities yeah. and say, um, and really act in solidarity and say, Hey, I, I, you ain't going to get free with me, <laughs> but once you're free, then I'll know freedom. So let's get you into the community and the people and the places that will help you get free. And it's not for their own benefit. It's not like this capitalistic, like receive consumeristic kind yeah. of way. Yeah. It's once the least of these knows liberation, then everyone knows liberation. Everyone knows liberation. Yeah. So, and, and when I say liberation to me, um, it's equitable with the kingdom of God, right? Once the least of these are able to enter the kingdom of God, then everyone else is. Yep. That's why the last come first and the first come last. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's all intertwined. This has been so good. This has been an, an amazing conversation. Uh, we, we could go on. I, I do want to end with this. What's next for you? Um, how do people stay connected to you? What's next for you? What's going on? I know you have a baby on the way. So that's that's definitely what's next for that's you. Like, yeah, that's like the next few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how can people stay connected to you? Um, any projects coming up? Yeah, um, I am. They can stay connected to me mainly through Instagram. So Camille.Jerry is, um, and that's Jerry with a G, um, is my Instagram handle. I also have a week uh it is weekly, but we're kind of in flex mode since I'm so close to labor. Um, but I have a regularly sent out newsletter that provides pastoral care. Um, 
to people who are like it's to BIPOC folks, but it is a it's a week it's a regularly sent newsletter that helps people see themselves. So I focus on black indigenous women of color activists throughout history. Um, as well as things to learn and unlearn and um, different tips to activate our own healing processes. Um, as for upcoming projects, um, I, <laughs> I'm like, I like to keep things secret, but um, I am working with a group of women of color on um, creating a podcast that talks about, that is solely focused on women of color healing from spiritual abuse. Um, so that'll be, so, yeah, that'll that'll just be a space that is open for honesty yeah. and realness that will like snatch your edges and bring you back to Jesus. Wow. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I know it's gonna be a, it's gonna be an awesome podcast and anything you touch, God will bless. That's my prayer for you. Thank you. Thank you for this time, for taking the time out, um, especially at this stage in the pregnancy. <laughs> um, so I wish you the best in that as well. Thank you, Phil. It is my pleasure. It really is. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Be sure to follow Camille on Instagram at Camille.Jerry. That's at C-A-M-I-L-L-E dot G-E-R-I. And as a reminder, if you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Open Wounds, please head over to Amazon.com and order your copy today. I believe you'll be challenged um, you'll be transformed, you'll be changed by the thoughts, the story that's in that book. Once again, thank you for listening and parking with me at the intersection. <laughs>